So, my name is Elizabeth Pierce, for those of you who don't know who I am. And we are in week three this week of a four-part series called Restore, where we are looking at the presence and power of the kingdom through what Jesus said and did in the Gospel of Matthew. And so I wonder if we could just start by opening this time up in prayer. Lord Jesus, we just surrender ourselves to you. We're here to meet with you. And so we lay down all of us and all of our thoughts and expectations and beliefs about things and ask that you will enable us to hear you and you alone. I lay myself down and ask you, Holy Spirit, to fill me so that it's your words that are coming out of my mouth and that nothing of me will get in the way of what you intend to say and do here this morning. So we just give you this Sunday. We give you this time. Would you be glorified? In Jesus' name, amen. So I thought Carl's description of this series was so awesome, I actually went online, listened to it, and typed it out so that you could see it and hear it one more time. He said, this series is a reminder that Jesus has taken his authority and passed it on to his followers through the person of the Holy Spirit for the purpose of pushing back the evil and darkness in this world. I think that's just such a great way of summarizing what it is that we've been looking at and what we're going to look at today and next week as well. Kevin reminded us in week one that Jesus is the strong man and that while there is a spiritual battle in this world, there's no contest when it comes to the amount of power that is available to us through Jesus and the amount of power he has and ultimately who wins that battle. And this matters to us because it means we have everything we need available to us to stand in victory and to do the work that he has called us to do to further his kingdom here on earth. Last week, Carl walked us through the fact that Jesus conferred his authority and his power onto his disciples and told them to go out and to do miracles in his name and through his power. He pointed out that when people were made well, when people were finding a place to belong, when people were freed from strongholds and given new life, that it was a way of testifying, it was a sign to the people who saw those miracles that the kingdom of God was in fact on earth and that the gospel message being proclaimed with their mouths was in fact true. Carl challenged us that we have that call on our lives as well. That we're challenged, he challenged us that we are not just to speak the gospel truth, but we are to demonstrate the truth of the gospel in our lives. So this morning is Pentecost Sunday, and we are going to take a look at what Jesus had to say about building his church and what that means for us today. We have the grade sixes and under up in the service with us this morning, so I want to say yay, welcome to all of you for being up here with us. And we're going to try to do the service a bit different this morning so that you feel a part of it and so it feels a bit more familiar to you. I know you have worship packets. If you don't, maybe wave your hand and one of the ushers can bring it to you. Make sure you keep an ear open, however, because I'm going to need your help and there's chocolate. Kimberly, for the kids. For the kids. Okay. All right. So let's start by reading our passage for this morning, which is Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20, and it'll be up behind me on the screen. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? 
And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and that on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades or hell will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So let's start by looking at the first few verses, verses 13 or 14 to 17. 15, actually, to 17. Jesus asks, who do people say I am? He wants to know what's being said about him out there, and his disciples tell him what they have heard people saying, and then he gets to the crux of the matter. He says, who do you say I am? And Peter's answer to that question is the biggest, most foundational part of what this passage is messaging to us. And it's so crucial that we know what our answer to that question is as well. Who do you say Jesus is? So I'm going to encourage you as we go through this morning that you be thinking about what your answer is to that question. There's a children's book called, Are You My Mother? And there's a picture of it behind me on the screen. Many of you probably either read this book to your children or have had this book read to you. In case you can't access that memory or you don't know this book, I'll just give you a quick synopsis. This book is about a little baby bird hatches from its egg when its mom is away from the nest looking for food for its about-to-hatch baby. And this little bird flies all over the place because it thinks, I need to know who I belong to. I need to know who my mother is. And it asks all kinds of animals, are you my mother? Are you my mother? And it goes to animals that are actually quite dangerous, that might actually eat it. Are you my mother? And it gets very, very far away from home, very far away from truth, very far away from where a little bird should be. It starts asking machines, are you my mother? A car, are you my mother? A crane, are you my mother? And somehow manages to think this crane is its mother. Thankfully, the crane scoops the little bird back up and puts it back in the nest just in time for the mother to come back to the nest with some food. And when that mother comes back, the first thing she asks that baby bird, do you know who I am? And because that baby bird has searched far and wide and gone far away from home, it says, yes, you are my mother. It understands where it belongs. It understands who it belongs to. And that understanding about that belonging keeps it safe and secure in that nest instead of far away where there are machines or animals that could eat it. That happens for us as well in our lives. There are a ton of things 
that can take us very far away from who we are and who we belong to in our lives. At school, there are people telling us things about ourselves, sometimes not very nice things. There are shows on TV, books that we're reading, social media messages that take us away from who we are and who we belong to. And if we let those things tell us who we are, or if we start to think maybe this is who I am and who I belong to, we can find ourselves thinking that things like a crane make sense, like the little bird did. It's so important that we understand who Jesus is, because understanding the answer to the question, who do you say I am, actually helps us understand who we are. Our identity or who we are, who we belong to, where we belong, is actually directly tied to who Jesus is. And I'm, this is one of those times where I need you if you're in grade six or under. So um, those of you who normally do church downstairs, you were doing a memory verse, Romans 10, 9, and 10. I need three volunteers who will come up on stage and say Romans 10, 9, and 10 for me together. So let me see. I see two hands. I see the two night kids. Come on up. I need one more volunteer. Oh, oh no, you're just yawning. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> All right. Anybody else? There's got to be one more kid. Romans. Yes, I see you. Come on up. All right, Helena, good job. So adults, it'll be behind these kids on the screen in case you don't remember Romans 10, 9, and 10. <laughs> but you have to stay looking forward, and we'll do it on the count of three. Ready? One, two, three. Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you confess with your mouth... They just want the chocolate. <laughs> Jesus is Lord. Let's all say it together. And believe in your heart. Can we see the screen, the next one? That God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. There is a screen with that verse on it. All right. So, before you sit down, let's help people understand why that verse connects to what I just said. So, Peter said, I know who you are, Jesus. You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. What does our verse say that we confess or say with our mouths about Jesus? Jesus is Lord. Yes, okay. And if we say Jesus is Lord, it means we are saved. saved. Yes. Whew. There you go. <laughs> that went a lot better in my bathroom when I was practicing. I just have to tell you. Okay. <laughs> All right. So this verse in Romans 10 tells us something really important. If we're going to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, or like Peter did, if we're going to declare that he's the Messiah, the Son of the living God, there's a direct tie to our identity, a direct tie to who we are. In Romans 10, it says it means we are saved. 
But you and I both know there are a ton of things that the New Testament tells us about our identity in Christ because we've chosen to declare that he is Lord. So help me out here, adults in the audience. What are some of the things the Bible tells us it means for us if we declare Jesus is Lord? Besides being saved, what else? We're adopted. What else? We're righteous. What else? Chosen. What else? Holy. What else? Free. What else? Set apart. Loved. Forgiven. Overcomers. Redeemed. Conquerors. Priests. Co-heirs. Royalty. Bet you if we spent a bit more time, we could come up with a whole bunch more. All of those things are who we are. And they are there not because of us, but because of the answer to the question, who do you say that I am? So let's just spend a moment and sing and reflect about that. Amen. <laughs> so if we continue on in our passage and we move on to verse 18, we read Jesus saying this to Peter. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. If you look up the word for rock in the Greek, it's Petra, and it actually means bedrock. And the geologists in the group might cringe at my description of bedrock, but it's not little rocks or even kind of middle-sized or large boulders. It's like this expansive, big slab of rock that is thick and stable and not full of holes. It's really quite firm and solid. And that word for rock is actually used 13 times in the New Testament. Jesus uses it when he tells us that the wise men are the ones that build their house upon the rock or on that bedrock, that solid, strong, firm rock. It's also used two times in the New Testament to actually describe Jesus. It's used in Romans and in that verse, in verse 30, uh, not chapter 9, verse 33, it's actually tying back to a prophecy in Isaiah about Jesus. And then it's also used in Corinthians. Jesus is described as the rock, the bedrock, that solid slab of thick sturdiness. Jesus is our rock. And Jesus is saying, I am going to build my people. I'm going to build my kingdom. I'm going to build my church on me, on the solidness of who I am and what I have done so that there is something firm and secure for my people to be planting their feet on. This is so important to us. It's important we understand who we are because of him. And it's important to understand that when we choose to be part of his family, we're standing on something firm and secure. If you think about the fact that we're in this spiritual battle, it's so important that we know that our feet are on firm, solid ground. You don't want to be in the middle of a fight, standing on shaky, uneven ground where you could step the wrong way and tumble and twist your ankle. You want to know your feet are firmly planted. When we, as the church, as the people of God, are being built up in Jesus Christ, our feet are firm. 
because they're on him. He is our rock. All of those things that we said that Jesus makes us, our identity in Christ that you called out, all the things we just sang about, those things aren't because of us. They're because of him. And that makes us secure. That makes our belonging sure. And that makes who we are, what we stand for, and who has us in the palm of his hand also firm and secure and solid like a slab of bedrock. There's one more thing that makes all of that a reality for us. We, the church, are the church because of Jesus, because of our identity in him, because of the firm ground we stand on. He is our rock, and we are built on him. And there's one more thing that enables us to fully be who he called us to be, and that is that he gave us his Holy Spirit. It's what today marks Pentecost, where all of those who declared Jesus is Lord with their mouths were also given the gift of the Spirit. And these verses we're studying in Matthew, most scholars who are of an evangelical bent say that they're actually foreshadowing or, or sort of prophesying what is to come in Acts 2 at Pentecost where the church is filled with the Spirit of God and unleashed to do kingdom of God work and transform this world. And so we're going to watch a video to remind us of what Pentecost is actually all about. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem, and when they heard the loud noise, everyone came running. They were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be? They exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. And we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. They stood there, amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, They're just drunk, that's all. Then Peter stepped forward with the eleven other apostles and shouted to the crowd, Listen! Listen carefully, all of you fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy, and I will cause wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark, 
and the moon will turn blood red before that great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I want to pray uh, for us as a congregation out of the Acts 2 passage in the prophecy that was quoted from the book of Joel on the day of Pentecost, where God promised to pour out his Holy Spirit upon all people. So just follow along with, uh, with the prayer, if you would. Our Father in heaven, how amazing and gracious and loving you are. On this Feast of Pentecost, we come before you as your privileged people, blessed and honored to be called by your name and according to your purposes. We are the ones who are receiving the promise of your faithful word in the book of Acts, that you have chosen to pour out your Holy Spirit on all people. We welcome that and receive with open hearts and arms all that you desire to give us. May we be filled with your Holy Spirit today. You said you would pour out your Spirit on all our sons and daughters. If you are under the age of 18, I would invite you to stand. Go ahead. If you're under the age of 18, please stand. If you're 3, if you're 5, if you're 11, if you're 10, but not if you're 18. Stay seated. But only if you're under 18. You said you would pour out your Spirit on all our sons and daughters. Lord, here they are. Look at them with your favor and blessing. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon them. May each of them be like Samuel, David, and Jeremiah, who in their childhood and youth knew you so intimately and were able to do amazing things for your kingdom because of you. May each of them become like that in your hands today. Please be seated. You said that our young people would see visions. If you're between the ages of 18 and 35, would you stand? As members of our millennial generation, please stand. You said that our young people would see visions. Lord, here they are, willing and ready to do your will. Please show them. Open their eyes to the wonders of your love for their generation. Fill them with your Holy Spirit and raise them up as a faithful generation for our time. Give them new eyes to see with that they may follow faithfully in the footsteps of their fathers and mothers who loved you. Thank you. Please be seated. Lord, you said that our old men will dream dreams. If you are over the age of 65, would you please stand? You said that our old men would dream dreams. Our glorious Father, here we are. We are the generation who know your faithfulness. We have tasted and seen that you are good. What more can we ask of you? You have already given us so much. But today we remember that you are not finished with us yet. You still have a purpose for us and there is still time. Give us new dreams for your kingdom today. Don't let the faith that you have built in our lives be lost when we are gone. Help us to pass on our legacy to those who come after us. May our lives still bring you glory till you call us home. Please be seated. 
Father, you said your spirit was to be poured out upon all your servants, both men and women. Sisters, would you please stand? Father, hear your daughters. Thank you for how you are moving in this generation to empower women and raise them up in our world. Raise them up in your church, Lord. Raise them up in your church. May each of these sisters be filled with your Holy Spirit and may each be brought to love and do amazing things among us for the sake of your kingdom. Thank you. Please be seated. And fellows, would you stand? Father, here we are. Your sons, brothers, those upon whom you said you would pour out your Holy Spirit to be husbands and fathers and men. Would you fill each and every one of us with your Holy Spirit? Would you pour out your gifts upon us? Would you strengthen your church because and through us? And would you build your kingdom by us as we serve you with all of our might and all of our heart? And if there's anybody here who wasn't standing, now is your opportunity. Let's all stand together, please. Lord, you said you would pour out your spirit upon all people. Here we are. Today, we welcome your gift of your Holy Spirit. Lord, bless us, each of us. May we be filled with your Holy Spirit. May you be glorified in each of our lives. May your kingdom come and your will be done among us and through us today and every day hereafter. Lord, we thank you for these blessings and this precious gift of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. The next verse is verse 19. Jesus is continuing to talk to Peter, and he says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So help me. What are keys for? What do we need a key for? Open a door. Unlock something. Anything else? Jewelry box, okay. A, a lock, yeah. And to lock it back up, okay, yeah. Okay. In your car, it allows you into something, shows you the way. Handcuffs, okay. <laughs> so, keys, this is always the danger when you ask for audience participation. You don't actually know what you're going to get. <laughs> a key gives us access to something we would not otherwise have access to, right? If we don't have the key, we can't get in. I have keys to my office, and on Friday I left them in my desk, and then I couldn't get into my own office because I didn't have my key. We need a key to get into something that we otherwise could not get into. When Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, he is saying, I am going to give you access to something you otherwise would not have access to if it were not for me. I am going to give you the ability to get into my kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, 
as my people, my church, and these keys he has given us, his work on the cross, his spirit indwelling us, is meant to offer us access into the kingdom of heaven now. This is not just an access that we're given eventually when we die, although it is absolutely that. But he gave us his spirit because he wanted us to start having access to this right now. And it's through those keys that we have the ability to bring the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. It's like Carl talked about last week. There's these parallel tracks. One of them is the truth of the gospel, the words that we speak, but the other is the actual demonstration, the signs of the kingdom of God here and now, and they go together. In a sense, they're the proof that the kingdom of God is here now, that we have those keys, proof that we're in. See, our confession Jesus is Lord, our declaration that he is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, that secures our identity when we proclaim that for ourselves. It plants our feet firmly on the solid rock of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. It's when it enables us to be firm and sure and secure. Then he fills us with his Spirit because he wants us to have the ability to experience the kingdom of heaven now. He wants us to feel his presence, to be empowered by him. And not only does he give us his presence and his power, the Bible tells us he also gives us gifts of the Spirit. And those gifts are the things that he wants us to partner with him to use to advance his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven, to demonstrate the things of heaven that are here now because of his spirit in us. This means if our identity is in Jesus Christ, if his presence is in us through the spirit, there should be proof. Our lives should reflect him. What breaks his heart should break our hearts. What he stood for, we should be standing for. What he fought for, we should be fighting for. What his mission was when the spirit of the sovereign Lord came upon him should be the mission when the spirit of the sovereign Lord comes upon us. There should be a connection between who we are and what we are doing, partnering with him, and what he did when he was partnering with the spirit of God. There should be a reflection. Now, I'm not talking about salvation here when I say there should be proof. I'm talking about evidence of the manifestation of the Spirit in our lives, evidence that we have chosen to be obedient, that we are surrendered to him, that he has us, and we are responding to him rather than doing things out of our own ability and strength. Even if you're a cessationalist and you think certain gifts stopped with the apostles, the Spirit still remains in us. So what is the proof? This really challenged me as I was preparing for this morning. I found myself thinking, hmm, I wonder if people see proof in me. I wonder if my co-workers, 
if my colleagues in the community, if my neighbors, if my employees, if my family, if they see something in me that makes them say, she's different. There's something about her that is not human. The Bible tells us we're not mere mortals. Is there something in me, the way I live my life, that's proof that I am not a mere mortal? Because you know what? There are a lot of really good people doing a lot of really good things out there in this world right now that don't know Jesus. So what is it that makes me different than them? Is there something where people can say, whoa, it's almost like she's got some sort of supernatural something happening when she does that. Because if I am surrendered to Jesus, if I am partnering with the Holy Spirit, if I'm doing what he tells me to do through his strength and not my strength, that's exactly what people should be saying. So I wondered, do people see that kind of proof in me? Am I surrendered enough to the Spirit of God that when they look at me, they're not seeing me and what a nice person I am or how good I am at such and such or this or that, that when they look at me, they're going, whoa, how in the world? That is not humanly possible. Because it's not supposed to be about me. It's supposed to be about Jesus. It's not about signs and wonders. We're not supposed to be chasing after that stuff, and that's not what I'm talking about. But we are supposed to be chasing after Jesus. So when people see me, do they see somebody who is so in love with him and so in tune with him, so entrenched in his kingdom work, following his spirit's lead, that they say, whoa, there's something about her that is like otherworldly. It's got to be the power of God, because what else could it be? Are we that church? Each and every one of us who has declared that Jesus is Lord has the power of Almighty God in us. Each one of us who's declared that he is the Messiah and believes that is not merely a mortal. So there should be proof. There's a lot of people leaving the church these days because they're not seeing proof. They're not seeing that what goes on here is much different than what goes on out there. We have Almighty God inside of us. We have the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord upon each and every one of us. We've been saved and redeemed and restored and forgiven and we're loved and we're chosen. We're all of these unbelievable things. Why is that not bubbling out from all of us? So appealing, so overwhelming that we cannot stop talking about it. That the way we're living our lives is not so compelling that people are like, I want what she has. <laughs> Jesus does not want us to wait until heaven to be able to experience that kind of fullness and blessing. This is not about guilt or accusation or condemnation for not doing enough. It's actually not about doing anything in our own strength. It's about experiencing him. And so there's blessing that comes from that. Do we understand that when we're asked to be obedient and surrendered, we're actually being asked to do that for our own good because Jesus came to give us a full life, not just an everyday mediocre like everybody else life. That's what this is about. There is ridiculous blessing from God Almighty 
when that is what we are picking. It would be kind of like if somebody came up to me and said, Elizabeth, here's a key to a multi-million dollar mansion. There should be a picture for this. Here you go, Elizabeth. Here's the key. And I say, oh, that's amazing. Thank you. And I walk into that mansion. I open the door and I get into that foyer. And I'm like, wow, this is awesome. And then I stay in the foyer. There's like 10,000 square feet of gloriousness that I could be experiencing. But I'm just going to stay here in the foyer. This is way better than what I had. But then I'm missing out. It's for me. It's all for me. There's more. But if I'm not choosing to explore and experience, it's me that misses out. The mansion's still there. It's still mine. But I'm like cornering myself into the foyer. It might be a glorious foyer, but it's not all there is. It's not all there is. Or for the kids in the crowd, can you imagine going to the Magic Kingdom? Okay? And you walk through the gates, and then you just sit on a park bench. You don't go on a ride. You don't take a picture with a character. You don't eat food. You don't go to the shows. Would you feel like you'd been to Disney? No. Would it be as fun as it could be if you actually rode the rides? If you actually went to the shows? It's pretty amazing when you walk into Disney and you just take a look. But it's far more amazing when you go through the kingdom and you experience it for what it is. We often sit in the foyer on the park bench of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. We declare he's the son of the living God. We enter into that kingdom excited and passionate. And then we sit down in the foyer. And we never partner with the spirit to tour through the kingdom, the mansion, to experience and explore and do what he's called us to do. So we don't get the benefit of that. And then when we're asking people to come into the mansion and all we're showing them is the foyer, they don't get it. They don't get why it's so awesome. See, when we introduce people to Jesus, when they get a taste of who he actually is and all that is available to us in him because of him, for him and his glory, he is irresistible. He's irresistible. That's what the declaration matched with the demonstration is supposed to be about. Because when we see that, when we experience it, it wells up and overflows within us and it's contagious. He is irresistible when it's him that we're sharing, when it's him that has control of us. Thousands of people turned to Christ at Pentecost. Why? They had a front row seat to what it was to be part of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. A front row seat to what it looked like to not be living as mere mortals, to actually have the Spirit of God in them. That's the presence and the power of the kingdom. That is what it means to push back the darkness, and that is what it means to be the church.
Ephesians 2, 18 to 22 says this, For through him we have both access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens of God's people and members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. That is the truth about us. We are his dwelling place. We are his church. And we come to the table this morning to remember what he did so that that was even possible. What he did so that we have a firm foundation. So that we are no longer slaves. So that we are free. So that we are chosen and righteous and loved and all of those unbelievably amazing things. Because of what he did on the cross. And so we take the bread to remember his body and we take the cup to remember his blood that was poured out for us. So I'd invite the ushers to come forward while we thank Jesus for this. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you went to the cross, that you secured our salvation through your death and resurrection. Thank you that you were willing to be obedient even unto death that you allowed your body to be broken for us and your blood to be shed for us because of how much you love us and how much you wanted to restore our relationship so that we could have intimacy and communion with you and access to the Father and the keys of the kingdom. So we give you thanks and praise for this sacrifice. You were holy, you were righteous, you were altogether lovely. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.